Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, my healthy seeking friends, the days of not following through with resolutions are over because the days of Sunbasket are just beginning, which means you're going to keep your resolution this year because Sunbasket makes it easier than ever. And today you can get $35 off your first order when you go to sunbasket.com slash 54. We are so enjoying our Sunbaskets. We have had other meal delivery services before. And I've never enjoyed one more. Like the other services, they would send you things that they easily could have cut. And then they make you cut. And it's so frustrating. But with Sunbasket, I, I have these meals that take 20 minutes. And, and they do everything for you. It, it, it's been amazing and delicious. I think I might even be able to make one. <laughs> yes, they're fantastic. We'll see. When you have healthy meals regularly delivered to your door with Sunbasket, it's easy to stay on track. I'm talking ingredients like organic produce, responsibly raised meats, sustainably sourced fish, organic pasture-raised eggs, and organic non-GMO tofu. It's a hard one to get out. Yeah. But but quality. Quality. I honestly don't think I could tell the difference between GMO and non-GMO tofu, but somebody can, and that's Isn't it great that it's there if you want it? Uh, Yes. And it's all personalized. Sunbasket lets you mix and match from paleo, lean and clean, gluten-free, vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean, and more. Not to mention tons of variety with 18 recipes to choose from each week. I pickled onions yesterday. I didn't even know that that was missing from my life, but now that I did it, I just want to do it every night. Can you onion pickles? Is that a thing? (laughs) I don't know, but if you can... Sunbasket can teach you how. <laughs> well done. Uh, go to sunbasket.com slash five four today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash five four for $35 off. Sunbasket.com slash five four. That's the numbers five four. This is Majority 54, and I'm Jason Kander. Today we're talking voting rights. In my mind, there is no issue of greater importance in the country right now. And that's because it affects every other issue. As you may know, I've put a good chunk of my time into this cause. I spent four years fighting voter suppression as Secretary of State in Missouri, and I've spent the last year fighting it as the president of an organization that I founded called Let America Vote. It's actually a really broad issue. When I tweeted out that I was going to talk about voter suppression and I asked people what they wanted to hear about, mostly people responded about photo ID. Because, understandably, that's what people usually think of when they think of this issue. But it's actually a lot broader than that. So in the second segment of today's show, I'm going to go a little bit deeper than usual. And after today's conversation with a guest, I'm going to get into the recent history of voter suppression, the tactics of vote suppressors, and how we fight back. As well as doing what we usually do in segment two. I'm going to tell you how to talk about it with your friends who don't yet agree with you. So segment two will tackle the issue as a whole. But for today's conversation with a guest, I wanted to zero in on an aspect of voter suppression that I don't think gets enough attention. And that's the disenfranchisement of formerly incarcerated individuals. Desmond Mead is the founder and the president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. But he's also impacted directly by this issue. Because in what may seem like another life now, he was once addicted to drugs and he spent some time in prison. He's one of the well over a million U.S. citizens living in Florida with very little hope of ever having their civil rights, including their voting rights, restored. He has a law degree, but he can't sit for the bar. He's active in his community and his wife ran for the state legislature, but he can't vote. Desmond isn't discouraged, though. He's fighting back and he's inspiring a lot of people, including me. Here's Desmond. Why are you fighting so hard to make sure people who have been convicted of a felony and serve their time get the right to vote in the state of Florida? Well, Jason, there's a couple of um, 
uh, reasons why I am fighting. One being the fact that I am directly impacted. I am a returning citizen uh, in spite of what I've accomplished in life uh, because I have a felony conviction and I live in Florida. I'm not able to vote. And it really uh, struck home last election cycle for me when my wife ran for public office and I was unable to vote for her. But I think the more compelling reason about why I fight is because of the many stories that that I've heard uh, while I've been traveling Florida throughout the years of everyday citizens who made mistakes in the past and are still making are still being made to pay the price. Tell me more about your background that led you to this point. You you referenced it, but tell me more about your story. In August of 2005, I found myself standing in front of railroad tracks, waiting on a train to come so I can jump in front of it. You know, that day that I was there, I was homeless. I was addicted to drugs. I was recently released from prison, didn't work, didn't own anything but the clothes on my back. And I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And I wanted to just end my life. But the train didn't come that day. And I eventually crossed those tracks. And I, you know, checked myself into drug treatment. And after completing that, I moved into a homeless shelter. And it was while I was living at the homeless shelter, I decided to go to school. And I enrolled in a paralegal program at a local community college and uh, did real well. And I was encouraged to continue my education. And so I eventually uh, got a bachelor's degree in public safety management and eventually I applied to law school, got accepted. And in May of 2014, I graduated with a Juris Doctorate degree. If you don't mind my asking, how, how did you pay for all that education? That's, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a real great question. So I was able to uh, pay for the education via student loans and um, the Pell Grant. You know, and and it's funny that you answered that. I think that that played a role in me doing well in school because, you know, I always thought, you know, especially when I first enrolled, that, you know, it was a miracle that I was even enrolled in school. I didn't think that people like me would have an opportunity to get education, you know, me being an addict, me being a convicted felon. Uh, but I did get that opportunity. And so I figured that at one point, at some point, Someone was going to come and say, hey, Desmond, we made a mistake in enrolling you in this school. And I wanted to be able to at least say, yeah, you may have made a mistake, but look what I've done. Please let me stay and continue my education. And so uh, that motivated me to really, I think it was only three classes uh, in my under, during my undergraduate career that I had uh, received a grade less than an A. And so I ended up graduating with distinguished honors, and that primarily because I wanted to make sure that I prove to whoever it may be that I was worthy of getting an education. Well, you did better than I did in school. I had more than three courses where I did not get an A. Uh, so, so that's great. Uh, there are plenty of people in law school right now who know that they're going to come out and they're going to have debt, but they know that at the other end of that degree is probably a paying job as an attorney. But you but you knew, given the laws in Florida, that you probably wouldn't be able to practice law in Florida, but yet you stuck with it. Well, yeah. And, and I think, you know, my primary uh, motivation for even going to law school was, uh, and, and I think it, it started when I completed drug treatment. And I knew that part of me being clean and sober was giving back. Right. And and so that's when I had really dedicated my life to uh, community service and being involved and being an advocate. And I figured one day I figured that if I'm going to advocate for folks, the the better understanding I have of the laws. Right. The more capable I would be to advocate on behalf of others. Right. And so because we know that law is intricately intertwined in all facets of our lives. And so my motivation was not to be a high-priced attorney or work at a firm. My primary motivation of going to law school was just to understand the law better so I could help others. So that that that's what drove me throughout the entire time. And, and then I knew that I wouldn't—the uh, odds were against me practicing law in Florida— 
Uh, but at the time, I was like, if push came to shove, there's 46 other states where I'll be able to practice law. But something happened along the way, um, and I think I was flying um, to South Carolina. And I remember when I was in the plane and I was looking down at this beautiful country of ours, and, and, and I was wondering where did Florida end and where Georgia began? Because when you're in the plane, you can't tell the difference between states. But there's an imaginary line that separates states in this country. And my mind immediately went to the days of slavery when all a slave had to do was cross that imaginary line to gain freedom. And I thought about it. I was like, listen, we're in 2000. At the time, I think it was 2010, 2011. And I was like, there is no way that today an American citizen should have to escape to another state in order to enjoy the freedoms of citizenship. And so I made up in my mind when I was on that plane that even though I could go to another state to practice, that I was going to stay in Florida until we change the policies. You decided to stay home and make a difference. You put you put everybody else ahead of yourself, basically. Yes. Yeah. Let's go back for a moment to the moment when you're standing on the train tracks. Tell me a little bit more about your journey in life up until that point. Basically, you know, I was just like every other kid growing up in a house. I think I had, I believe I had loving parents. Um, but, you know, one of the things that 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 sidetracked me, you know, because as a kid, you know, I always used to dream of being a pilot or being a lawyer because I used to love to watch the old Perry Mason movies. Um, but, you know, at some point I, I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, you know, at an early age. And, and eventually uh, I became addicted to the drugs. And so my life, you know, from the time um, I left high school um, until 2005 was a series of ups and downs um, but it was highlighted by a lot of incidents where my addiction to, to drugs uh, caused some heartache. But it's not as if you weren't uh, making a real serious effort to be a part of society. I mean, you, you joined the Army, right? Oh, yes. And like I said, one of my dreams was being a pilot. So I, I was trying to become an aviator. Uh, but unfortunately, my eyesight wasn't good enough. Um, but, you know, while I was serving in the aviation unit, I remember having conversations with a lot of the pilots who flew in Vietnam and, and a lot of the helicopters that I worked on had still had the bullet holes, um, at the bottom of the, um, um, helicopters from when, uh, these helicopters were being shot at by the Viet Cong, hmm. you know, and, and thinking about how people was risking their lives and, and to to save other folks and and to defend democracy, you know, it really you know did something to me and and, and really created an even stronger commitment to serve. Uh, however, that that commitment to serve was not stronger than my commitment to drugs or to getting high, um, and so that you no, know, my addiction did derail my military career. So. You're struggling with addiction. You come back home. You uh, you end up homeless. Uh, and now, what year was it that you found yourself at the railroad tracks with the intent to kill yourself? Yes, that was August of 2005. You know, um, several years before that, you know, I was homeless. I was uh, still using drugs. So I was in and out of jail. Uh, eventually, in, uh, I think, 2001, I was sentenced to 15 years um, in state prison uh, for um, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, uh, and some drug charges. And I eventually, though, I didn't serve the full 15 years. I was released uh, early uh, because of I did appeal my case, uh, and I was able to win that appeal. And I eventually only served three years out of that 15-year sentence. So you're standing there at the railroad tracks. The train doesn't come. Did you go Did you go straight to 
a uh, rehab center or what stopped you Straight from saying, it. I'm going to find other railroad tracks? The the rehab center were two, was two blocks away from the railroad tracks. Wow. And so when I crossed those tracks, I walked those two blocks and I said, hey, let me just give this thing another shot. You know, um, you know, I was tired. I, w- I was really tired uh, of the ups and downs that's associated with um, with addiction. Uh, and I, I wanted to do something different. You know, when I was standing at those railroad tracks, you know, and I, and I thought back to my mom and, and dad, and I know that they didn't raise me to be in that position, but there I was, you know, and well, I was willing to do whatever it took to to change, you know, my station in life. And, and you know, at first I attempted to, to jump in front of a train, but that didn't come. And so the next immediate option was to try drug treatment. And that's what I did. Well, I'm glad you did. Uh, so now you're, um, you know, now you're you're essentially a full time activist uh, on the cause of of restoring, um, particularly voting rights for folks who who have a felony conviction. What I'm curious about is, you know, you you didn't first of all have to adopt a cause, but you did, and you chose this cause. You could have taken up the fight for prison reform or criminal justice reform, or just for your own right to practice law and earn a living, how did you decide that this was going to be the issue where you were going to focus? Well, you know, that's a great question, you know, and and I hear you, you know, the different areas that you just named off about, you know, criminal justice reform, especially criminal justice reform. Um, I never looked at it like that. You know, I I looked at that. I'm fighting for a, a better society. I'm fighting for a better community. You know, when I went through the things that I went through with my addiction and, and, and my transformation, one of the things that I realized was that if our society or if our community uh, is to uh, be stronger, uh, we must invest in, in the weakest in our communities. You know, there's an old adage that says a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And so... What I've dedicated my life to is fighting to strengthen the weakest links in our communities, in our societies, because I believe that, you know, even though we are a great country, uh, we can be even greater. When you first got started on this and, and, you know, launched this campaign in Florida, how was the idea received? Well, (laughs) um, so I can tell you that... um, this is an issue that's been around for quite some time. Um, and, you know, initially when I started working on this, uh, along with others, um, with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, um, we did make some headway. And at some point we were able to get uh, then Governor uh, Charlie Chris to um, institute a policy that would allow for the automatic restoration of civil rights uh, to nonviolent offenders. Um, And so we've been working on this for quite some time. Uh, But eventually when Charlie Chris left office and we got a new governor in, um, it goes by the name of Rick Scott, um, he rolled back those policies and made it even more difficult uh, for individuals to have their rights restored. I think that that, you know, the rolling back of those policies uh, kind of changed the game a little bit. Um, But what it did more than anything at that time was it really depressed a lot of people because we put a lot of time and effort and resources into uh, getting as far as the policies that Charlie Chris implemented. And to see it undone by a signature of a pen was very disheartening. And so... Uh, eventually when I, I decided that, you know, that we have to take it a step further and shoot for the stars, um, you know, it wasn't that much uh, energy or excitement around that because people were of the mindset that uh, this issue was too controversial uh, and that there wasn't enough public support for it. And furthermore, in, in Florida, just so people know, it's, it's not as if it's a small change you're trying to make. I mean, it's, it, is, it is a very difficult um, process to overcome that they've put in place. Talk a little bit about what it actually takes, if it is at all possible, to get your rights restored in Florida. 
we're required to collect signatures throughout the entire state of Florida from registered voters. Um, and there is a, a congressional district requirement that's attached to two different phases. So phase one would be that we would have to collect, uh, at the time it was 68,000 valid signatures in at least seven congressional districts um, in order to trigger a Supreme Court review. And then once that phase have been met, uh, that stage have been met, then the other phase, which we're in right now, is collecting uh, 766,000 signatures in at least 14 congressional districts. You tried to get it on the ballot in, in 2016, uh, and it, it, didn't, it didn't make the ballot. What changed, in your opinion, what do you think has changed between 2016 and now? Well, I think the main thing has been uh, more awareness. You know, when we when we first started, you know, I can tell you we didn't have any money. Uh, we didn't have any really major uh, organizational support around this effort. So it was just pure, uh, pure grassroots effort, um, which is very difficult in the state the size of Florida. Um, at one point, it was just me. Uh, traveling this entire state, uh, handing out petitions uh, to volunteers and and collecting them and, and counting and sorting them and turning them in. Uh, it was a one-man operation for quite some time, you know. Um, but I think what has changed is that as the grassroots mo- movement uh, was growing, uh, more and more people started just hearing about it. And then uh, we were doing something that has never been done before in the history of Florida. And that was that we were able to trigger the uh, Supreme Court review by pure volunteer effort. We did not have any paid signature gatherers um, on our side. We didn't have what I call the sugar daddy that was financing the campaign. You know, it was just everyday American citizens on the ground collecting petitions one by one. And eventually we were nearing uh, the point where we were triggering the Supreme Court review. And that got a lot of people's attention. Hey, Jason, last time we did a sleep number ad, you uh, were saying something about how you didn't like to sleep in hot accommodations. Yes. yes. And so how was last night when the furnace went out and it was negative two degrees outside? It's not what I was going for. It was rough. It's so important to get sleep. It turns out it's really hard to sleep in when it's 50 degrees in your house. It, or it felt like less. It was, I was, it was bad. Also, when your mattress is uncomfortable, right? These sleep number mattresses. Well, great transition. Thank you so much. <laughs> they are so smart. They sense your every move and they automatically adjust to you. They keep you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. Maybe if we had sleep number bed. We could have made it through. I think it would still be cold, but yes. (laughs) In honor of 52 years of football's favorite Sunday, take $52 off any item over $100 from sleep number, which by the way, have you tried their pillows? Amazing. Visit sleepnumber.com slash big game to get your $52 coupon now through February 4th. Again, that's sleepnumber.com forward slash big game. What I remember being most blown away by when you and I talked, I think maybe eight months ago or so was that, was that the most of the people who were doing this work with you were people who uh, had been incarcerated in the past, people who were directly impacted by this. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it's not, you know, You know, at first glance, you know, someone might think that that's surprising, but it's not because, you know, America's infatuation with the criminal justice system has literally assured that every other person that you have a conversation with, either they have been impacted by the criminal justice system or they know someone, whether it's a family member or friend that has been impacted. And so when, you know, you're talking about the folks that's out there on the ground, so many of them, uh, if they're not directly impacted, th- then their son is or their daughter or their grandson and, or, or granddaughter. You know, there's so many folks that are just connected 
um, in a very personal way to this issue that has really caused, I think, not only excitement, but it's caused a, a higher level uh, of commitment on a grassroots uh, level uh, to make this thing happen. And in fact, once you get this done, how many people in Florida are going to be impacted by it? Well, you, uh, when the last report was released, uh, I think in the summer of last year, um, it was estimated that over 1.68 million Floridians could not vote because of a prior felony conviction. Um, what we believe is that uh, when we're successful in November of, of 2018, that uh, at least a minimum of 1.2 million people will be uh, immediately impacted. That's enormous. I mean, yes. for something that started with you driving around Florida, like you said, a pretty big state uh, with petitions um, yourself, what over these several years that you've been involved in this now, what would you say are the three biggest things you've learned about activism and about creating change? Man. <laughs> so let me tell you, what the, the, the one thing that I'm most excited about um and the best way for me to articulate it is to really start talking about the uh, last couple of hurricanes that hit the United States this year or last year. Um, when you talk about Irma um, and, you know, you've seen the response, right, how people came together from all walks of life and they addressed a human need. They addressed humanity. Um, that is what this campaign is most about. That is what excites me the most. That's what, you know, I've learned uh, is that at the end of the day, if we can just remove a lot of these barriers uh, that other people uh, place in front of us, or if we could just move, remove a lot of these labels and just really connect with each other by that basic that, that basic humanity that connects us as human beings, uh, that we can do amazing things. And we've seen that during the hurricane relief effort, and I'm seeing that in this campaign. Uh, and, and that's what I hang my hat on more than anything else, is that I've learned how people can come together when something is right. People can come together when we're just talking about something as fundamental as forgiveness, redemption, and restoration. Well, and people have come together around this. I mean, you've got people excited all over the country about your effort. I mean, you've been on, you know, you've been interviewed by Samantha B. Mainstream folks have really started to pay attention to this. You and I first started talking months ago. Uh, and since then, I've watched as all these celebrities have uh, lined up behind the cause. How gratifying, I know we're not at the finish line yet, but so far, how gratifying is that? Or do you not even think about it that way? You know, let me tell you, I uh, uh, I am extremely gratified, um, but I don't know to what level yet, you know, because I haven't slowed down enough to think about that. But I am grateful because, you know, I remember those days when, you know, I would try to hunt down someone to talk about this issue. You know, I, I put over 50,000 miles a year on my car without leaving the state of Florida. You know, I remember uh, taking my student loans and, 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 and get some of the refund from that and flying to D.C. and flying to other areas, cold calling on, on folks and trying to get people uh, interested in talking about the issue here in Florida. And I remember there were so many doors that were closed. I remember that there was so many folks that told me I was crazy and and that this thing would never happen. I remember those days and nights of just being like feeling like so lonely that only only people I had was, you know, other returning citizens that were a part of the organization. And I had my family, you know, and, and so to now see that uh, that there are celebrities out there that's talking about this issue. Uh, it is extremely gratifying. Um, but like I said, I don't know to what extent yet because I haven't slowed down enough to really let it all soak in. There's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who I think are sort of on the cusp of jumping in and, and fighting for a cause that they believe in. And maybe they haven't made the decision to do that yet. For somebody who's listening who feels that way, what advice do you have for them? 
This is the cause to jump in on more than any other cause, I believe. Because, you know, when you talk about if you believe in democracy, then this is a cause to be involved in no matter what state you live in. I mean, it doesn't it it really doesn't matter. At the end of the day, what we're doing here uh, is creating a more inclusive democracy. We believe that a more inclusive democracy is a more vibrant democracy. And at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing that speaks to citizenship more than the ability to have your voice heard. That no matter how much money you make or no matter what position you are in society, no matter what title you have in your name, at the end of the day, everyone is equal in that ballot booth, you know, in that voting booth. And, and, and so when you when you talk about being able to allow an American citizen the ability to have their voice heard. And when you talk about increasing the amount of citizens that are participating in the democratic process, all of that wrapped into a nice, clean, neat package is what we have here in Florida. Those are the, the areas that we're addressing. And then at the core of all of that is just that, that, that common uh, 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 element of forgiveness. You know, America is a nation of second chances, you know, and so we want to make sure that folks in Florida have that second chance uh, to really experience what being a citizen is all about. Well, and for your for your second chance, I mean, you know, not only could you not vote in the presidential election last year, but more importantly, your wife was running for state representative and, and you couldn't vote for her, right? Yeah, I mean, that was very disheartening, you know, because uh, I remember right before it, it, it dawned on me that I could not vote for my wife, uh, I remember reading a story in the papers about how prisoners in Puerto Rico was able to participate in the presidential primaries, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and then when I looked at the amount of people, the number of people in Florida who couldn't vote, there were more people in Florida who couldn't vote than the— the total amount of people who voted in several states across this country. Wow. And, and, and to think that, you know, that we have shut out of the electoral process more people in the population of over 10 states and in, in U.S. territories and over 60 countries in the world, you know, to, that that kind of infuriated me. You know, knowing that in, in 46 other states, that folks with criminal convictions uh, who have paid their debt to society uh, were allowed to participate, but yet in Florida we couldn't. And we sat on the sideline and we watched it. And and so many of us wanted to be engaged, but we couldn't because we live in the state of Florida. So, you know, you talked about flying over the the border, not knowing where it is. It's a, it's feels like it's an imaginary magical line. I mean, but yet, Elected leaders in Florida and in some other states, well, particularly in Florida, haven't changed the fact that it's one of three states to essentially prohibit voting by anybody with a felony con conviction. Why do you think that is? Why do they refuse to change it, in your opinion? Well, you know, one of the hardest things that we can do as human beings is change. You know, we we get so accustomed to to doing things a certain way that when someone recommends something different, it, it's always a challenge to us. You know, and so, you know, this is uh, this policy has has been in place in Florida since the Jim Crow era. It's uh, probably the uh, lone remaining Jim Crow uh, era policy that's in place today. Um, and I think no one just really had the the audacity to believe that we could change this policy. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and and that's what it takes sometimes. You know, uh, I, I was always, you know, taught growing up that anything worth having, you're going to have to struggle for, you know. And, and and so I think that until we're able to fight to struggle for our freedoms, until we're able to fight and struggle for a, a more perfect democracy, a more perfect union, um, then policies like this would remain in place. You know, when someone... Uh, you know, returns to society, one of the things that we expect of them, and one of the, you know, right, or one of the expectations we rightfully put on them is that they will reintegrate into society. And so, you know, putting aside for a moment other policies that I think are in error, like 
how difficult we make it for them to get a job, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. To me, the idea that we then say to people, oh, and by the way, you can't participate in democracy, but we really want you to rejoin this society. There seems to be no argument whatsoever that I ever hear for any benefit at all for keeping people from being able to vote if they've been incarcerated. There is none. Um, There is no benefit to any of the barriers uh, uh, that are that are put in place, especially around employment, uh, housing, education. You know, as a matter of fact, it's to the de- detriment of our community that you know these barriers don't do anything for public safety. What we do know, and th- and this is an interesting um, fact, uh, the Florida Parole Commission at the time in in two thousand and eleven, I believe, uh, they actually did their own study. And what their study revealed was that uh, at the time, Florida had a recidivism rate of 33.1%. And so that meant that out of every 100 uh, prisoners that was released uh, into our communities, 33 of those are going to go back to prison. Uh, But when they looked at individuals whose civil rights were restored, what they found was that... uh, the recidivism rate was reduced from 33% to 11%. <laughs> all right. And so when you, when you, when you talk about, you know, what's best for our society, what's best for uh, public safety, I lean more towards a program that would remove these barriers that would give people an opportunity to come home, reintegrate back into their community, get a job, be able to get an education and to move on with their lives and be able to participate in the electoral process. Now, what I do know and what almost every single expert from the days of Moses to today would tell you is that the quicker we allow that to happen, the least likely it is for someone to reoffend. So it's in our best interest that we uh, uh, remove these barriers. You know, when you talk about if I can't get a job, it's harder for me to pay taxes. And if I can't pay taxes, that means more of the tax burden fall, fall on you. Right. Uh, And if I'm getting incarcerated, what, for instance, Florida is a great example. You know, at the time, Florida was paying uh, $18,000 of taxpayers money to incarcerate one individual, while at the same time, it was only $3,500 allocated to educate one child. And so when you have uh, states or governments that's spending taxpayers' dollars at six times the rate, you know, to incarcerate an individual as opposed to educate an individual, then nobody benefits from that but the private prison industry and people who profit off of separating families. Okay, Soothe Superfans, I have an update. I was in Los Angeles for a business trip and I got a Soothe massage and it could not have been a better experience. The woman who came was like a walking infomercial, just like the ad copy always says. She said that she used to make $20 working at a a massage place per massage and now makes over $70 a massage. Jason, if you're doing the math, do you know how much that is? I'm just here to go. Soothe. It's three and a half times, just like the ad copy says. Three and a half times. She didn't even know about the ad copy, but... Everything she <laughs> did talked you talk about. To her about it? I did. I was like, it's just like the ad. <laughs> Everything she said about how much she likes the service and how convenient it is. Oh, and by the way, I ordered it like two hours before she showed up. It was incredible. You can book via iPhone or Android and you can book a massage as soon as today. It's simple and really awesome. Our listeners get a special offer that's going to get them $20 off their first soothe massage when they use our code five four just download the soothe app s-o-o-t-h-e in the ios or app store or google play store and be sure to use our code five four to get twenty dollars off your first massage now she didn't know it was pronounced that way and so i was trying to (laughs) but that was weird in the middle yeah i was like it's catching on it's going around the country you should you should tell as many other people as you know she started with a company 
She said in 2013, like when it first started. When she tells the story, she's like, I meant this, this lady woman. who was weird. <laughs> she kept and, trying to tell me how to pronounce it. Yeah, she was a, she was a super <laughs> fan of it. Anyway. Okay. Soothe. Spa quality massage. Anytime. Anywhere. You can spend less time planning your next trip and more time relaxing with Tripping.com, the world's number one site for vacation rentals trusted by millions of travelers and featured by the New York Times, Travel and Leisure, Forbes, and more. We should maybe use this. Or plan our next vacation. Well, wait. I don't <laughs> well first of all, we should schedule one. But also, when we go on vacation, we just kind of go to a place. Yes, and don't really think about what we're going to do there. But with Tripping.com, one search lets you filter, compare, and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and more. Don't wonder if you're getting the best deal on the winter cabin or the beachfront home. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking your vacation with Tripping.com. Your sister, when she travels, she like, Plans the entire thing. It's she like, plans everything. Everywhere like a, she's going to go by the hour. Like an army training schedule. And we just pick a city and say, let's figure out what to do there. Like there's a ticket to there and it's warmer than here. But at least you can have an amazing place to stay. You don't even have to leave. Yeah, maybe, this is a perfect planning probably, tool for us. We should probably do this. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, head to tripping.com slash majority five four today. That's tripping.com slash majority five four Tripping.com slash majority five four. I really appreciate Desmond sharing his story with us. But most of all, I just appreciate everything that he's doing. So let's get into the most deceptive arguments against voting rights. The best known form of voter suppression is photo ID. And I think that's where we should start. And the argument that you always hear is some version of, you need a photo ID for everything. Who doesn't have a photo ID? I mean, you got to use it to check into a hotel. That sort of argument. You've heard it before. So the key to responding to this is getting specific. Your inclination, like mine, is probably to want to start with, look, none of that matters because this is a constitutional right. I mean, for me, when I get frustrated in a conversation like this, I tend to say, look, I didn't go to Afghanistan so that you could check into a hotel. But the truth is that when I say that, or when you say some version of that, it actually will only get you so far. And, you know, the next thing you're probably going to say is statistically, and this is true, you are more likely to be struck by lightning as an American than you are to commit voter impersonation fraud, which is the only kind of fraud that a photo ID requirement can even pretend to prevent. And that's, I think, something worth saying, but it's still not quite enough for a lot of people. Because even then, people are going to probably say to you, well, even so, what's the harm in requiring one just to, just to maybe stop fraud just in case? So what you have to do is get into the practical barriers that exist for people that go beyond just the ID or the underlying documents to get an ID. I ask people, when's the last time you were at the DMV? And I say, I'm guessing that was during working hours, right? And how long were you there? The point of it is, is that if you, in order to be able to vote, have to go to the DMV, which is only open during the hours you're supposed to be at work, either to get your ID or go there multiple times to get underlying documents, or you got to get on the phone to uh, a Department of Revenue in another state who has your birth certificate, all of that stuff is a huge inconvenience and a natural barrier to voting that nobody ever really talks about on this. But for a lot of people, that's not enough either. So you got to use specific examples. And I tend to use a couple of examples that I think paint the picture well for people. I talk about the 99-year-old man, World War II veteran in Wisconsin during the 2016 election, who rode his bicycle to his polling place, which happened to be the same building that he went to once a week to read to kindergartners, and he presented to them his photo ID, which was his faculty ID from the University of Wisconsin. Now, he goes to this building once a week anyway, and he's been voting at this location forever. So I think it's pretty safe to assume that he walked in there and people know this guy by his face. They're on a first name basis with him. And yet, because they couldn't accept that ID, he wasn't able to vote. I talk about the woman in her 80s in North Carolina who didn't need an ID for any purpose in her life other than now she needed it in order to vote. She showed up at the DMV in order to get the ID that she needed, and she couldn't get it because she couldn't prove her maiden name meaning she probably never got the chance to vote. Photo ID went on the ballot in 2012 in Minnesota, 
And in August of 2012, when they polled it, it was polling at about 80%. 80% of people were saying they were going to vote yes, saying that you should have to show a photo ID in order to vote. And they did something that hardly anybody's ever actually tried on this, which is they launched an actual campaign against it to make the argument. And they ended up winning just a few months later in November. And what they did is they focused on two things. First, they focused on telling the stories of regular people who seem like the kind of folks that you would know in your community who were going to be disenfranchised by this and who weren't the targets of disenfranchisement. They were just regular folks who were going to be collateral damage. They told those stories. And they were very specific to that legislation. They weren't saying, here's why photo ID in general is bad. They were saying, this bill is going to cause all sorts of problems. And then the second thing they did is they talked about how much it was going to cost. So when you tell people, here are the problems with it, and here's how much it's going to cost, suddenly you're getting to a place where people are realizing, well, maybe it's not worth just trying this. I mean, they're telling me that, there's, that it doesn't prevent any sort of fraud and that you're statistically less likely uh, to commit this kind of fraud than you are to actually be struck by lightning. I don't think I want to pay tax dollars in order to go do something that seems to have all sorts of problems. And that really gets to the point on photo ID and on these voter suppression laws. I think a lot of politicians see the polling on this and they see 70, 80 percent of people disagreeing with them and they think, well, I can't possibly take that position. Too many people disagree with me. Well, one, that's no way to actually go about things. You should do what you believe. But two, one of the things I think they don't realize is that while people may hold that view, this is not something that they rank real high on their list of issues that they're voting on. They don't hold it with a great deal of intensity. It's not something that they think is going to help them put their kid through college. It's not going to put the money in their bank account for them to go on an extra vacation that year or a vacation at all that year with their family. And the way I know that is that to this day, I'm pretty sure I'm the only person to run in a competitive general election for secretary of state anywhere in the country and run an ad about my opposition to photo ID. In 2012, at the beginning of that race, We looked at the same kind of polling they were seeing in Minnesota, high 70%, 80% of people saying they disagreed with me about photo ID. My campaign team said, hey, it'd be really great if you could come around to requiring some form of photo ID. And I said, no. And then we ran a statewide ad saying that I was against it. And I stood outside the polls on election day and people came up to me and they would shake my hand and they would say, they would say, you were wrong about photo ID. And a lot of those people, though, at the same time said, but I see why you feel the way you do. And you told me the truth. And so I'm going to vote for you today. And a lot of them told me, yeah, you know, I disagree with you on that, but there's probably much more important stuff out there. I had earned their trust. All right, on to the next one. Argument two. When I asked everybody on social media, what are the arguments you hear that you want to hear me respond to? Surprisingly, one of the most common was people saying, look, the Democrats are only fighting voter suppression for political reasons. They just want their own political advantage. Look, first of all, no. That is not right. Speaking for me, speaking for this Democrat, that's not why I'm fighting for it. I just really believe that we got to make sure that every single person gets the opportunity to vote, every eligible voter. But okay, even if we were to grant that basic idea for a second, let's talk about it. First of all, it wouldn't be trying to gain an advantage. It would be trying to get a fair fight going. What the Republicans are doing is they're trying to keep people who they don't think are going to vote Republican from voting. So if there are people who also happen to be Democrats, but first and foremost are voting rights advocates, who are coming out and saying, actually, how about we just let all the eligible voters vote and we'll see who has the better argument? That's not trying to gain an advantage. That's trying to actually have a fair argument, a fair fight. This is where we have to focus on putting this issue in the correct box for voters. Here's what I mean. There's a big difference on this issue between the views of elected Republicans and the views of your average Republican voter. Republican elected officials have something to gain by voter suppression policies becoming law. It helps them stay in office or it helps their party stay in power. But the average Republican voter, when you really break it down for them and you explain that this is not about voter fraud, this is about partisan politics, the average Republican voter, certainly the average independent voter, looks at that and says, That doesn't seem right. I want my party to win, but I think they should do it fair and square. So when I say put it in the correct box, what I mean is too often we allow this argument to take place in a voter's mind in a box labeled voter fraud. But we know that's not really where it belongs because that's not really what this is about. So if you can shift it to the box it truly belongs in, which is a box marked partisan politics, 
then most voters are going to look at it and be pretty suspicious of anybody who's trying to push a policy that changes the rules in order to give themselves a better chance of winning because that's what Republicans are doing. Remember, this is not a policy difference between the parties. The Republicans act like it is. They act like it's just like taxes or health care. No, it's not a policy difference. It's a political strategy by the Republican Party that goes back almost a couple decades now. And it's a strategy that should be in a category no different than when they decide what to say in TV ads, what to say in mailers they send to your house, or which doors to knock on. It's all about winning elections for them. I was the chief election official in Missouri, the secretary of state for four years. Missouri is a state with a GOP supermajority in the legislature. So I've seen up close and personal the voter suppression playbook. It's got three steps. Here's how it works. Step one is they undermine faith in American democracy. Step two is they use that undermined faith, that lack of faith, to create obstacles to voting. And then step three, they create obstacles to the obstacles. So step one, if you want an example, think about the so-called Election Integrity Commission that President Trump commissioned. I refer to it as the Voter Suppression Committee to reelect the president because that's what it was. The whole point of it was to make you believe that there were real big problems, widespread fraud in our elections, so they could move on to step two, which was creating obstacles, and then step three, obstacles to the obstacles. And the best example of step two and step three, well, that's pretty widely known now. It's what they tried to do in Alabama, where they passed a law that said you needed a very specific form of identification, a photo ID you would get from the DMV in order to vote. That was their step two. And their step three was they shut down the DMVs in the black parts of Alabama. They created an obstacle, and then they created obstacles to the obstacle. But look, there's all sorts of different types of voter suppression. Sometimes they consolidate polling places in urban areas. So, for instance, we've seen this in the past year where they have a special election and people go to vote, and it's not the same polling place as it was just a few months ago in November when they went to vote, and it's primarily in urban areas. Then there's voter purges. You look at Georgia right now, the Secretary of State of Georgia has purged hundreds of thousands of people off the voter rolls, and he just happens to be a Republican running for governor in Georgia right now. There's cutting early voting hours, which is pretty plain how that's voter suppression. There are places in the country where one county will offer one kind of early voting, and then the next county will offer a much more limited type of early voting because of funding and it gets from the state. And obviously, there are two very different populations in those two counties, and you'll see a more affluent a more heavily white community get a lot more opportunity to vote than the county right next to it. There's some really creative and devious, scary stuff out there uh, that's brand new where they're trying to intimidate young people. In New Hampshire, where President Trump lost uh, at the presidential level in New Hampshire and where the Democrats won the Senate race, both of those races were decided by a thousand or just a few thousand votes. The Republicans actually won the state house, the state Senate, and the governor's mansion. They looked at that and decided, well, the reason that we didn't win was because of college students who weren't voting for us. And we need to change the electorate in the next two years so that we can win elections like that. So they passed a law saying that if you same day register and then you go and you vote, uh, then we're going to send somebody from the government by your door to question you about how long you actually plan to live in New Hampshire. You can imagine young people, college students in New Hampshire, aren't thrilled about somebody from the government coming by their dorm room. So they're trying to intimidate them out of voting. Now they're going even further. I won't bore you with the details, but they're trying to take that law even a step further right now. So there are all sorts of different kinds of voter suppression. So when someone brings up just one of them, photo ID or some other, one of the important things to do is to say, okay, if that was really just about stopping fraud, why are they doing all these other things that seem to affect the very same population? All right, let's look at the third one. People say, look, it's a civic duty. Folks should just go vote. doesn't matter if there are obstacles. They'll say, look, I, I take time off. I go do it. Other people should do the same thing. Look, rather than get into a big fight about whether or not that makes any sense, don't get bogged down in that. Instead, talk about ways that can be made easier, not just for people other than who you're talking to, how it can be made easier for all of us. I really think people ought to just take more of a customer service approach to voting rights, to the act of voting at all. So give people something of value that they can focus on. I always mention to people, I'm like, look, I can pull out my smartphone and I can tell it that when I'm traveling, I can say, look, uh, I want to watch the Royals game when I get home. I could tell my phone to tell my TV to do that. So the idea that I got to wait in line for sometimes two and a half hours to vote, 
That doesn't make any sense at all. Now, I am not saying that you should be able to vote on your smartphone, but I am saying that in this day and age, 2018, people in America have come to expect a certain level of experience as a customer, whether it's a customer of government or anything else. You can go onto your phone and you can tell it, you know, I really want that T-shirt and you can get it like the next day delivered to your house. So people don't like the idea that voting is as inconvenient as it is. So lean into that and tell them some of the things that can be done instead. Go the other direction. Talk about how in Oregon they have automatic voter registration. So you don't got to go around and have these voter registration drives. And when people complain, hey, why don't young people vote? Well, if you're worried about that, doesn't it make sense that as soon as you turn 18 that you're registered to vote? Isn't that a common sense idea? Oregon also has, other states have, mail-in ballots. And by the way, Oregon, which has all these things, which I think is kind of the gold standard of how to do elections, they have the highest turnout in the country, and they have some of the highest security in the country. So don't get bogged down into an argument about whether or not people should overcome these obstacles to voting. Instead, shift to an argument about how this ought to work. Okay, let me tell you what you can do about this. You can get involved with Let America Vote, which I know sounds like a shameless plug, but Look, it's my podcast, and I founded the organization. Favreau and Pfeiffer sit on our advisory board. For the longest time, this was exclusively fought in the court of law. And really, that made sense for a long time. The Department of Justice was doing a great job fighting for voters. So were other organizations like the ACLU, which still is. But something changed with the November election of 2016. And that is that when President Trump came into office— Two things happened. One, he told what I argue is the biggest lie that a sitting president has ever told. He said that there were three to five million illegal voters in the election. Now, you're listening to that and you're thinking, is that really the biggest lie that a sitting president's ever told? I think it is. You may disagree. I promise we're thinking about the same president. But the second thing that he did is he made Jeff Sessions the attorney general. And that meant that the Department of Justice was about to switch sides in every voting rights case. Imagine this. Imagine that. You bring a lawsuit, you're the plaintiff, and about halfway through the lawsuit, your lawyer, who's sitting next to you, turns to you, stands up, picks up their papers, and says, I'm over there now, and walks to the other side, and now he's against you with the other lawyers. That is what Jeff Sessions is doing in these voting rights cases right now. He has switched sides. No longer is the Department of Justice on the side of American voters. They are actively working against American voters and arguing for voter suppression policies. So the legal challenges are still incredibly important. But what happened is a, a transition that meant we have to now take this argument beyond the court of law and also into the court of public opinion. That's what we do with Let America Vote. The mission of Let America Vote is to create political consequences for politicians who push voter suppression. Basically, if you're a politician making it harder to vote, we're making it harder for you to get reelected. We're a boots-on-the-ground organization. We knocked over 200,000 doors in 2017 across three states. We helped flip eight seats that were previously held by Republicans who voted the wrong way on voting rights and are now held by voting rights advocates. So if you're interested in getting involved with this, and I hope you are, you can text MAJORITY to 44939. That's MAJORITY to 44939. You're sitting there. You got your phone out anyway. You're probably listening to this on your phone. Just text MAJORITY to 44939. And if you want to intern with us in 2018, you can go to letamericavote.org slash intern. Is this an ad? Should I, be, <laughs> should I be involved in this? It's, I guess it's kind of, yeah, an ad. Yeah. Okay. Just, just want to say, hey, Do you I'm want here to, to help if you need me. Soothe. Um, <laughs> all right, look, that kind of screws up my big finish. But voter suppression is the key to the Republicans' plan to hold on to Congress and President Trump's plan for reelection. Like, Somewhere there's a whiteboard that has the Trump re-election strategy and points one through five are all make it harder to vote for people who don't tend to vote Republican. So if you care about that, then you should care about voter suppression. And look, I just think it's about time that we say to Republican elected officials, if you come for our right to vote, we're coming for your job. There's one episode left in this season. And as we think about what's next, we'd really like to hear from you if you know someone who you think would make for a good guest. And when we look for guests, we look for people who have been personally impacted by an issue in the news and then grabbed an oar and did something about it. And if you or someone you know well fits that description, send us an email at hellomajority54 at gmail.com. 
All right. Thanks for listening. And again, thanks to Desmond for fighting the good fight in Florida. His Twitter handle, as well as more information about the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, is in the show notes. So please show some love to both. And don't forget to reach out to me, too. Let me know your favorite takeaway from this episode. And as always, go on social media and share it with your friends. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Talk to you soon. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.